Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be talking about Ford v. Ferrari, and we'll also be doing a mailbag. We've asked for your questions on Twitter. You can always reach us at Matt Goldberg and Adam Chip and at Adam Chitwood. And so you, you sent us some cues, and we'll, we'll try to have A's. And so, the besties. <laughs> and so until then, we're going to, but first we'll talk about uh, Ford v. Ferrari, which we both saw at Toronto. So it's been a, been a minute. Did you, did you, did you, have you seen it a second time or is it just the one time for you? I haven't, man. There are so many movies in theaters that like my fiance hasn't seen anything. Cause I saw everything at TIFF and we're like trying to like schedule wise, like, Oh, maybe tonight's the night we see Parasite, but then it just doesn't line up. So I have not seen it again. I also haven't seen Jojo Rabbit again. I haven't seen Parasite again. Um, I will be seeing Knives Out again next week because that's the perfect Thanksgiving movie. But it's on my list. Well, I have seen it again. So <laughs> there. Uh, no. Well, it's, it's a good one to watch in the theater, too, because the sound is insane. Yeah, the sound design is fantastic. Um, yeah, Ford v. Ferrari is very much a dad movie, but it's like it's such a well-made film. And for those who don't know, Ford v. Ferrari is about uh, Carol Shelby and Ken Miles, played by Matt Damon and Christian Bale, uh, as two guys working for Ford to help them build a car that can beat Ferrari at 24 Hours of Le Mans, which is the the idea behind 24 Hours of Le Mans is that it is it is one lap. Like, it doesn't take 24 hours to go around it once. The thing <laughs> is, you have to go around it tw- for nonstop for 24 hours, and so it's exhausting. And, uh, you know, so it's a test of not only a car's speed, but also its endurance. And so it's a really uh, just well-made film by James Mangold. Like, the, what, I've, what I've said about it is that it doesn't reinvent the wheel. It's just a perfect wheel. It's just, it's a really well-made, well-crafted film that I just very much enjoy watching. Like, I don't think it has, you know, the depth of a film like Parasite, but it's a lot of fun to watch. And I think there's something to be said for that. Well, and it's also, and I said this in my review, it's a, it's kind of a reminder of the movies that Hollywood used to make, which seems insane. Like a movie like Days of Thunder should not be like that outdated in terms of the kind of movie that it is. It, I mean, it's very outdated in terms of the hairstyles. Um, I also don't love that movie, but like that, that just kind of like really solid adult drama. Like it's not for kids. It's not really for teens. It's just for a movie for grownups about like grownups doing grownup shit. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say Days of Thunder is a movie for grownups, but there's a, there's quite a bit of sex if I remember correctly. There is, but it's sort of like when when Tom Cruise gets injured and then like Nicole Kidman's the doctor and he thinks she's a stripper or a hooker or something. It's like, oh, a woman doctor. I never. <laughs> well, let's say for grownups in the 80s, <laughs> the Coke-fueled 80s. <laughs> the Coke-fueled 80s of Don Simpson. Yeah, uh, Don. Anyway, the, but no, the, I would say, yeah, Ford v. Ferrari is like an action movie for for, for adults. Yeah, and it feels – it's just so weird. And I saw a bunch of people uh, commenting on this on Twitter when the first trailer came out. Like there really was just a feeling of like I'm watching something new or something different, even though it's not new or even really that different. But it is when you stand it next to everything else that's in theaters right now. When everything is IP, everything is blockbusters, everything is superheroes, everything is launching a franchise, this – you know, there's not going to be a sequel to Ford v. Ferrari. <laughs> um it just is. It's just a really well-made film. And then, you know, so you take that and then add on top of that, 
you have James Mangold just really pushing to make it the best kind of movie it can be. Um, you know, it, it, I think he told Steve that there was like a four hour cut, four and a half hour cut of this movie, which I will definitely believe. I mean, I think the film as it stands now is a little over two and a half hours. Um, but this is the this is the kind of thing like a good fag- filmmaker is capable of doing is taking that four hour movie and cutting it down to a manageable length and like this thing hums it really moves the it pacing doesn't feel it, two and a half it doesn't no. it feels much shorter every scene feels essential um, every scene kind of moves the story forward it informs the characters it's just it is it is precision filmmaking. Um, from a guy who clearly has a master of his craft. And like, well, I would say, well, I would slot a director like James Mangold more into the journeyman kind of niche of directors. I don't think that is an insult. I just think he's able to go between genres pretty well. And he has, you know, this is, I would categorize as like a sports drama and he has made an, a, a terrific one. Yeah, he's not... Uh... I, I would rope John Favreau in that as well in terms of like journeyman directors who are very capable of like they know what kind of film it is that they're making and they can make it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, whereas someone like Christopher McQuarrie, like I think McQuarrie and Mangold have similar sensibilities, but I could never really see Christopher McQuarrie directing something like Kate and Leopold or even really like Walk the Line. Um, I mean, I think he'd be a capable he'd be capable of doing it, but uh, like his sensibilities seem pretty tuned to uh you know a very specific kind of movie that he likes to make i agree with that yeah but i think with ford v ferrari it's just this is it's a crowd pleaser of a film it's really fun um i just it really it works for me it's just a a film that like i would very much like it's not my favorite film of the year but it's a film that like it may end up being like the most rewatchable film of the year for me. Like the film that like I'm bored. What's on TV. Oh, this is on TV. I'll leave it on in the background while I work. Like it's that kind of easygoing, but entertaining film. Yeah. We were, I remember coming out of the TIFF screening, all the other critics we were talking to, like the common refrain was like, this is the movie that's going to be on cable for years to come. And like, you're just going to watch it whenever it's on. Cause it's so just entertaining. And you just drop right in. And like the, the star power, like, you know, the quote unquote, the movie star is dead now, but Damon and Bale, I think give two really terrific performances, but they're not going like full Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> like, Well, that's the thing. No. Like, you know, with, with, the thing about performance and the way it's noticed is always most acting. Like it's very hard for people to pick up on subtle kind of, you know, easygoing performances or like it. And so the actor has to either be like the most acting or it has to be like, like a Martian situation where like, he's the only actor, you know, like he's, yeah. it has to be so reliant on one performance that it is impossible to ignore it. But I think, you know, when you watch a film like Ford v. Ferrari, you can sort of see that, that Bale and uh, Damon are kind of masters of their craft, not by how big they go, but by how effortlessly they make this look and by getting you invested essentially with like, you know, they're just trying to like help a, a, a rich car company. Like that's all it is. So the fact that you give a shit about them as people and are invested in their struggle really kind of is a testament to those performances. Yeah, and I think it's something that people don't really... I mean, yes, I think Joaquin Phoenix gives a really terrific performance in Joker, but I think it's... The level of difficulty, I think, is is similar with something like this. Like, you know, Christian Bale couldn't... isn't just going to decide, like, oh, I'm going to drop 150 pounds, and what if he had, like, a 
Kane problem, just to make it a little more flashy, a little more interesting. And Matt Damon's not going to, you know, start throwing wild characterizations out for this character. I think some people, especially with Damon, I think people kind of shrug it off as like, well, it kind of seems like that's how Matt Damon is in real life. So I don't really think it's a that stretch for performance. But even a movie like Downsizing, which I don't love, but that, you know, you have very specific tones and levels that you have to hit at specific points in the film and the actor needs to be in tune with what is what is right for that moment what is right for that film and i think um this two-hander here neither damon nor bale really takes over the movie from one another and they're not it's a collaboration you don't get the feeling that one of them is trying to kind of one-up the other one yeah the thing about like with performance is like Acting is hard. It is really, yeah. I think it's one of those things where like we, we watch an athlete and we're like, well, there is no way I can do that. There is no way. But you look at an actor and you're like, well, they're just playing make-believe and that, I can do that. I can play make-believe. But there's a lot that goes into it about not just in terms of how you calibrate your performance, but how you listen and react to your fellow actors. And then there's, you know, especially on a film set, you have to be aware of how close is the camera to you. Like, well, how big do you have to go? How much, yeah. you know, how, how are you going to read this line? How are you going to give the director what they're looking for within the scene? Oh, and we're also going to shoot this scene, you know, 20 different ways. Can you keep up what the director wants 20 times in that span and keep focused? And then at the end of the day, the editor is going to pick something that may you may not have thought was your best take. So it's really, there's a lot that goes into it. So to just sort of be like, well, that's Matt Damon. A, you don't know who Matt Damon is. I don't know who <laughs> Matt Damon is. And I'm not saying like he's a rich, complicated fellow um, any more than anyone else. It's just, you don't know who Matt Damon is. So this notion that like he's not acting because he's not putting on makeup and shooting Robert De Niro in the head. Yeah, spoiler for Joker. <laughs> it made a billion dollars. If you didn't see it by now, did you really care that much about Joker? Yeah, I know a lot of people who have not seen Joker yet, but it's because they don't care. Yeah, They're at like, that I point, it's, like, it's kind of on you. At that point, you have to take a little responsibility and be like, you know what? It came out like almost two months ago. Maybe I don't give a shit <laughs> about about the clown man. Um so, but yeah, this is not, it's, it's a performance that's not very loud and in your face, but I still think it's a very strong performance. Yeah. And I think, uh, I would also note that I think Noah Jupe gives a really great performance here and I'm really excited to see between this. Here. Yeah. Between this and a quiet place and honey boy, I'm really excited to see where he goes next. I think don't, he's a don't forget. And even though the film is, is not good, he was good in Suburbicon. Oh, that's right. He was. Where he watches he's Eddie the, eat that sandwich. Yeah, he's the main character in Suburbicon. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers, but he watches his dad eat, eat a sandwich, and it's a pretty interesting outcome. <laughs> it is an interesting, man, Suburbicon. <laughs> what a film that's halfway to being decent. <laughs> like, if it had just picked a lane. I mean, if we're talking about Matt Damon and Noah Jupe movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, making great movies, making good movies is hard, and I think... Uh, I think Mangold's talent is on full display in Ford v. Ferrari and, and that he knows exactly the kind of movie he wants to make. He knows exactly how to make it. Yeah, it's just, it's a really, it's a precision machine um, to apply the terminology of the film, I suppose. Um, and it's just, I'm not even like a car guy. That's the thing. Like, I don't give a shit yeah. about cars or racing. Neither was Mangold. He said when he signed on, because this project has been around for a while. And at oh, one yeah. point, I think Ridley Scott was going to do it with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Uh, and that was like five years ago. It wasn't super long ago. So it's been around a while. Yeah. But like, just, you don't, that's the thing with the 40 Ferrari. Like you don't have to be like, well, I don't know cars and I don't like, like you don't have to know because the, 
the terminology is always very well explained, but never in a, like it's just you're watching characters who are knowledgeable and good at what they're doing. That's like saying like I don't care about you know Apollo thirteen because I'm not a space shuttle guy. Like no, yeah. it's just you're watching knowledgeable people be good at their jobs, and I like competency. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I I really you know that Ford v Ferrari is a is a wholehearted recommendation from me. It's a film I really hope people see, not just because it's good, but I th- think it's important to show studios, you know, there there's an audience for something that's not just franchise films. Yeah. You know, exactly. and obviously Ford Ferrari is never going to make the money of a, an Avengers Endgame, but still I think you can make it a hit based on what it is. Yeah, it's kind of nuts that this, like in the early 90s, you look at the early 90s and 80s, like a movie like Ford v. Ferrari was the blockbuster version. Like that was the big high profile movie of the year. Right, exactly. Yeah, things have just changed so drastically. Yeah. So, and that's the, and the thing is, is I don't know, like, I mean, it's 20th Century Fox. I don't know what they're going to do with it in the awards race. Um, you can probably speak to that better than I can. Yeah, I mean, it... I don't know. It's weird. There was this perception that it was behind, but then there are others who think that it really wasn't behind. But its opening weekend box office was very solid. And uh, I don't know. There's usually kind of like a dad movie pick in the mix and the best picture mix. Uh, so I wouldn't be shocked to see it get a nomination. But as I've said many times before on this podcast this year, fucking Green Book won Best Picture and Bohemian Rhapsody was nominated for Best Picture and won like three Oscars. So who the fuck knows at this point? <laughs> like, what is an Oscar movie anymore? If those movies are winning, getting nominated, it's it's tough. Yeah, we're watching the the Academy in a time of transition. So maybe in a few years, we'll have a better handle on what they like and what they dislike. But for now, it's it's anyone's game. Yeah, but I, I think Ford v. Ferrari is a pretty strong shot. Uh, and I know that Bale and Damon are both competing in the best lead actor race. So they're not doing that kind of category fraud thing where one of them goes supporting so as not to kind of uh, hinder the other one's chances. I like so. the term category fraud because it implies that there's some sort of enforcement. Like, ah, category fraud. <laughs> I'm going to call the category police on you and you're going to go to category jail. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 whatever. Like people do it all the time and – I mean, Olivia Coleman uh, arguably was category fraud for best actress and won, but whatever. They're just awards. doesn't matter. Indeed. Uh, okay. So do you want to move on to, uh, to mailbag or anything else to add on Ford v. Ferrari? Let's do it. All right. Mailbag time. Uh, Raul Cruz asks, what are some of your favorite animated films that aren't from the U.S.? That is a huge blind spot for me. I mean, obviously, Spirited Away. Um, uh, gosh, what's that? Uh, the one with like the three three witches. Is that are they witches? What is it? I can't remember. I don't see a ton of animated films to begin with, um, and you know, when it comes to foreign films, I'm usually trying to catch up on on the big ones. People. Um, you know, like Parasite and uh, The Farewell and stuff. So I don't have a ton to add to this one, do you? Uh, obviously, yeah. Miyazaki is, you know, his work is always tremendous, Spirited Away. Um, and Princess Mononoke, uh, My Neighbor Totoro. But I would say outside of Miyazaki, uh, Triplets of Belleville is very good. Uh, well, that's the one I'm thinking of. They're not witches. They're not witches. Right? <laughs> it's a long time since they're in that movie. <laughs> they, I know they were creepy 
uh, kind of kooky. Yeah. Um, I'd also set, throw in uh, Waltz with Bashir is an excellent film. Um, I think that from Israel, that one's pretty great. Um, beyond that, yeah, I mean, the thing about animation and, and when you look at it from like a worldwide perspective, it's not that there aren't, there is animation from other countries. There's a lot of animated shorts. The problem is, is that when it comes to feature animation, animation is just so expensive and like the apparatus to create it has to be very sort of, uh, fully formed in a way. Um, so usually it's the U U S studios that have the resources to, to dedicate to that. Um, also, I and and again to to this to to Raul's point, I assume when he said outside the U.S., he was meaning all English-speaking films, because obviously, like if you go outside the U.S. but you go to the U.K., you have Ardman Studios, and you know they're doing obviously they've done great work for a long time with with Wallace and Gromit and and things like that. But um, just animation is hard. Um, but uh, those are a few those are a few titles outside the U.S. that I enjoy. I will say I usually uh, look forward to the animated shorts category each year because they're that's pretty much overwhelmingly foreign language mm-hmm. um, uh, or international films. It's so. usually about a sad French robot. Usually, or like a bear or something like that. Something like so. that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, David Mitchell Baker asks, are there any actors who instantly improve a film for you whenever they show up? Uh, Joan Cusack is the only right answer. Joan Cusack is certainly a correct answer. <laughs> yes. Joan Cusack will improve any film. Um, that is just a fact. Uh, who are who are some others? Who are some others for you? Uh, Sam Rockwell, but it's it's getting to the point where he's becoming a little overused. Um, where like the impact is not as strong as it used to be. But I mean, you throw Sam Rockwell in anything, he's he's going to be a good time. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. Who like has a blast? And it's just super fun to watch. Um, there's someone on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think about it right there now. There are character actors who I feel like they don't get their due. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, like, uh, who's, a, who's a character actor that I really love watching? Um, I, I just, mean, Mar- Margot Martindale's great. Yeah, always. Stanley Tucci, the Tooch. The Tooch is, is fantastic. Is, the Tooch is always gold. Um, let's see. I mean, in terms of actors who I think, like, I, I feel like I, their, their presence, like... Actors who I think of like as good performers in bad movies, the two that always come to mind most often are Ben Foster, um, who can give really strong performances in weak films, um, and also Jenna Malone. Yeah, that's solid. Yeah. So um, th- those are those are just a few. There are obviously, I mean, again, character actors you just have like a pretty deep well to choose from. But yeah, that being said, sometimes character actors don't really get used to full effect. Although, you know, a guy that actually who I'm, I, who recently a character actor that I've recently really enjoyed whenever he pops up is Bill camp. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A fun thing about HBO shows is they just use the same actors all the time. Like Glenn Fleshler is in this week's episode of Watchmen just because Glenn Fleshler is in everything on HBO. Yes. <laughs> he's on boardwalk empire. He's on Barry. Uh, he's the he yellow King. <laughs> he's the yellow King true detective. And then he went over to Showtime. I think he's on Billions. Um, yeah, a lot of like TV like that. There's people who are like, oh, yeah, that guy. I like that guy. Yeah. Um, I also feel like Michael Shannon is an actor that really just improves everything. <laughs> just thinking about his line in Knives Out <laughs> about eating shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
You'll know when you see the movie. I'm not going to spoil it. But uh, it's the Egypt scene. He has a very good comeback. <laughs> uh, he always makes things interesting. Um, yeah, gosh. I'm trying to think. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Maya Rudolph is pretty delightful as well. Yes, that's whenever, true. Whenever she shows up in anything. Um, okay, so another question. Kevin Small asks, thoughts on a Lady 007 in the new Bond film? I do have thoughts. Women can't be spies. No oh, one denies this. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Thing, you're going to tell me that you hate The Last Jedi. Well, now that you mention it, women can't be Jedi. No one denies that. No. All right. Let's get, let's get serious. So here's, here's my issue with the lady 007 thing. I feel like it's a bad faith attempt. I feel like, so what has been happening over the past few years, especially in, since Spectre is there's been a lot more outcry for a new kind of 007. And I think the producers are sort of hearing, like, I think they have definitely have heard like Idris Elba should be bond or like, they want not a white guy to be Bond, but the producers are also very conservative and they feel like Bond should always be a white guy. So they're like, well, how do we square this circle? And what they're doing is basically saying the new movie will have a lady 007, but it's not really 007. Like it's sort of like she's 007. I wouldn't be surprised if that character dies. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. It's sort of like, so then when the next time people are like, you should, you know, not have a white guy always playing Bond, they'll be like, we had a lady 007. And it's like, that's not the same fucking thing. And you know it. It's, you know, there's a difference between James Bond and his, you know, his designation. And like, that's, it just, it, it annoys me. It annoys me because it feels like it's not an attempt to address the criticisms or do something daring. It's the illusion of doing something daring without really following through on something that would be actually interesting and different and creative. And, and to be honest, the Bond producers, Eon, will have to start really thinking outside the box because the problem is, is that Bond is an outdated character. And I say that to someone who thinks Skyfall is amazing, but the thing about Skyfall is that it's a, it, it's, it's a character at a crossroads and, yeah. and understanding like the path, things are changing, but also the things we love about this character are, are the ways it looks into the past. But if you want to move it forward, you, you might have to do some tricky things. And I think pretending, you know, that it's still 1967 is a bad way to go. Like, I don't think that's the way forward for the Bond franchise. And I think uh, there could be some very tough times ahead. Obviously, they haven't announced who will be the, the Bond after Daniel Craig, who I think has had, even if uh, No Time to Die is a bad film, I think Daniel Craig has been a successful Bond. I think start when you've starred in two of the best Bond films of the entire franchise and people buy you as that character and they really like you as that character, I think that is a successful run as the character, no matter how No Time to Die turns out. But I think in terms of the next Bond, I think Eon should go bold rather than be like, is Tom Hiddleston too old? <laughs> you know, like that's, that's really what they should be going for. Man, didn't expect you to come out swinging for uh quantum of solace there. Big I, fu- I mean, solace fuck fan. that. I mean, that was a movie without a script. Who's, who's to blame. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, obviously the caveat to all this is that, uh, the whole female 007 thing is like, we don't know. Like it's been reported that she'll be 007. It's been reported that she's only 007 in the opening sequence. Um, 
but we don't know for sure exactly how that plays out and what's going on. I do like that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is involved in the screenplay, and I would like to think that she, uh, you know, is a good enough writer to know when uh, this kind of bad faith thing is happening. Um, but more to the point, I just like, I don't know. And I fundamentally just have this disagreement with people, but I do not give a shit. Like make uh, Lashana Lynch, James Bond, Jamie Bond, make her uh, 007, let her take over the franchise. I do not care. Make Peter Parker black. I don't care. Uh, you know, reboot Star Wars with Luke Skywalker as a woman. I don't care. Like it, and especially with Bond, like there have been like twenty some odd films. The actors always change, and like we, like how much longer can you milk the white, suave dude? They, like, there's got to be, there got to be a different way to do it. And like, I, I don't know. To me, nothing seems more fresh than like, what does a female James Bond look like? Like, what? How do you actually do that? How right. do you stay true the, thing, the like, tenets right. of what it is? And but also acknowledge the times have changed, but also see like you know what does it look like when a woman is using her sex appeal um, on these missions and is super capable and doing all this spy shit and looking really cool? Like what does that look like? I would like to see that. And if they do that, and it's not good, it does not change the fact that Skyfall and Goldfinger and Casino Royale and Goldeneye are some of the best Bond movies ever made. Yeah. Like it does, it does, it does not have any impact on those previous films. Like they just exist; they're fine. I, so I just don't understand this whole pushback against, like, well, that's not Bond, or that's not Peter Parker. If you do that, especially when we've seen with the MCU, like how radically they have changed these comics characters, and right. fans are like, they're, yeah, this is good. They're fictional characters. This isn't like that story <laughs> that broke uh, like earlier this week. They're like, can Julia Roberts be Harriet Tubman? Mm-hmm. No, that actually can't happen. <laughs> That actually would be wrong, <laughs> yeah. but you know, if, if you want to, if you want to, you know, Julia Roberts to be Spider-Man, I don't give a shit. <laughs> it's just like a creative exercise to me. Like, well, why, why would you not want to try something different instead of just doing the same tired thing over and over again? Like if they cast Tom, Huddle, Tom Hiddleston as Bond, like we know what that's going to be mostly like, sure. Maybe it'll be like a little interesting and a little surprising. And to be honest, he's already kind of played Bond on, uh, what was that AMC miniseries? Um, gosh, it was really good. The, I think it's a John Le Carre. Oh, the uh, the the night manager. Yeah, the night manager uh, may not be John Le Carre, but like it was. he was a spy on that and super cool and like that was fun. Yeah. So yes, that's my in, end of rant. I, I I I don't care. Yeah. Um. All right. Um. Let's see. What else do we have in the cooker? Uh, we've got any thoughts on season three of the crown or Charlie's angels. I don't think you've seen either of those. I have not. I've seen like half of the first season of the crown and I liked it quite a bit. Uh, my fiance and I watched it together, but it's not a bin show. Like it's not. No, each episode is a meal. And I think benefits from waiting at least a week before starting the next one. Cause we did try to binge it and we got pretty tired. Like it gets, I don't know if boring is the right word, but like it just kind of starts to blend together a little bit when you watch it all in a row. It's very good. Like the production value is incredible and the acting was good and we have every intention of picking back up with it, but haven't seen it. Yeah. How about you? You've um, seen it. I've you seen, did. yeah, I haven't seen Charlie's Angels, but I've seen The Crown season three. Uh, I am very much on board with The Crown. It I, I, it took, 
about halfway through the first season for me to get on board and then to realize, oh, you don't binge the show. You just kind of take each episode and then, um, but I, I feel like season three is pretty strong. It, I mean, it's a new cast as they move the timeline forward a bit. Um, but I feel like the, the central thesis of the show that Peter Morgan has built is that there's this sort of, uh, the first two seasons are kind of about Elizabeth trying to reconcile the fact that she has a duty beyond the personal. And then there are a bunch of people around her who don't understand that being part of the crown means you don't get to do whatever you want and that you have to actually put your personal ambitions aside. Um, season three is sort of like, she has come to grips with that and her place and her, her relationship with the, with being queen. But now there's sort of, that doesn't necessarily mean that all is settled. Um, there's a, a gut wrenching episode called Aberfan, uh, in season three that will just destroy you. But it's a really important episode to sort of show how the queen's role has evolved and, you know, what she needs to do and, you know, what, what is demanded of her in times of crises, um, and then the, the season kind of closes out with the, the emergence of, you know, what is, uh, what is going to happen with, uh, Prince Charles. Uh, and there's kind of a tragedy almost that hangs over the Charles stuff because, you know, in the present day, we know he will not be king for a very long time. Um, and if, when he is king, it will be for a very short time, but the in 19 you know in the 1960s when the when season 3 takes place no one knows that they think oh you know she, you know queen elizabeth will live to you know a, you know she won't she won't live you know to be in her 90s that's ridiculous <laughs> um so we have to groom him to be king and we have to make sure that he and so he you know they want him to give up all these personal ambitions and all these personal things for to be king and we know he's not going to be king for today. He is still not king. It's 2019. He's still not king. When Queen Elizabeth dies, he will be king. And then he is also very old and he may not be king for that long. He certainly will not be king anywhere close to as long as his mother was queen. So it's just, it's, it's bizarre and it's tragic, but it's, it's still captivating. Um, and, and the crown has just, it's not a show that I thought would have really, um, been my thing because I've never really been that interested in the Royal family, but Peter Morgan, like he did with, um, the movie, the queen with, with Helen Mirren, he's able to sort of find a more universal approach that also doesn't feel voyeuristic. And I think that's his, his great strength as a storyteller with regards to the Royal family. Nice. Well, I look forward to watching that. At some point, yes. Uh, any more questions? Was there any more? Yeah, I've got a number. Of yeah, questions. yeah. Uh, shoot, back from earlier. All right. Uh, so, do you and Adam have a top ten of the decade list? The answer to this is Matt does, and it will be on the website. Do you want to it, say the date it'll be on, Claire? The it is a top twenty-five list um, because it's the decade, um, and it'll be on the site next Friday. And I uh, will put together my own. It won't be on the website, but I will probably do a decade podcast. Um, it'll probably be it'll it won't be next week, but you'll probably hear it um, soon after that. And maybe we'll try to bring in some of the other Collider staffers to talk about the other list. But uh, I'll use that opportunity to to drop my top ten list. Uh, it's just pop star number one through ten. It's it's fine. So. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's what that's that's what we have planned. It was it was tough. Um, and, and I mean, sure. it's tough not just because you know how do you whittle this down. I you know I've seen some people. I think the AV Club did like a top one hundred. My my whole thing is that a list of, of this form of this kind should be manageable to a to a reader. So for the average person who doesn't like see hundreds of movies a year, like these are the 25 you need to see just 25. And I think 25 is pretty manageable. It also is like, it makes it tough. It's like what makes the list, what doesn't make the list. And I had to make some tough cuts, but you know, it was interesting. Some, some films that didn't make my top 10 list in that year have grown on me over time. And it's also worth noting that there, I have not seen every movie from the 2010s. So there will be some omissions and it'd be like, well, why is it on there? It's like, cause I haven't, you know, the article's got to get online and I didn't have time to watch the Duke of Burgundy. So <laughs> that, that's how we roll. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Um, but I'm looking forward to sharing all of our best of the decade content. So check Collider every single day throughout the week of Thanksgiving and you will find a lot of different lists. Yeah. There'll be uh, a lot of best of the decade content coming at yeah. you. Uh, Chris Broman asks, can you guys talk a bit about the new DOJ rollback of movie distribution laws and what kind of impacts it might have? I'm sorry. What was that? It? Uh, the new, uh, department of justice rollback of movie distribution laws. Oh, and what oh kind of yeah. Impacts yeah. That's a bad have. thing. Yes. So, you know, and it's funny, I saw the sort of the counter argument, uh, Brad Bird made it. Um, and he of course was so- he did. <laughs> I, I, you know, I like Brad Bird. I think yeah. he's a good dude, and I like his. I like most of his movies. His argument on Twitter was basically that we're not going to go back to the days of block booking because in those days, you know, a movie theater only had one or two screens. So it's not like a theater is going to take over all of the screens of a multiplex. And I just feel that's hopelessly naive. And I'm reminded of a quote from Easy Riders Rating Bulls where multiplexes are on the rise. And George Lucas says, this is great. This is great because what it means is that with more screens, you're going to get a lot more diversity at the market, at the movie, at the movies. Mm. And he was fucking wrong. I can understand in the seventies thinking that that was right, that that was, that, that could have happened, but it didn't happen. What happened was that the screens just filled up with more of the same movies. Um, and you ha- and there, and therefore you had art houses taking all the stuff that wasn't going to the multiplexes. Um, what's going to happen? My prediction, what will happen if this law is, is, is struck down, um, which, to recap, the law um, that was in place prevented uh, movie studios from owning theaters, which leveled the playing field because if a movie studio couldn't own a theater, that meant that the theaters would have to play movies from all the studios. Exactly. Um, well, and not just that, but they couldn't force uh, – block. what block booking was was basically saying like a studio is like, if you want our big movies, you have to take our crap movies. Like that was yeah. – and – you know, because they were owned by, you know, because the studios had this power because of owning the theater, like it really put the theater owners who, you know, or the managers or whoever in a tough spot to make a profit because they would, you know, have to, to take these bad movies, these beef pictures that they didn't want because they needed Gone with the Wind or what have you. Um, the What will happen if this law is struck down? And I, it looks like it will be, which sucks is you're basically going to see in the theater schemes what's happening on streaming, which is that each studio will just have its own chain of theaters. 
And so there will be the Disneyplex 23 and the Warner Blo- Warner Brothers Plex 24. And like, they'll just, sh- like, Disney isn't going to share space with their competitors. It doesn't make financial sense to them. Now, maybe in the best case scenario, they're like, wow, this is a great opportunity to put some of our older films back into theaters. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think what's going to happen is you'll have 12 screens showing showing a Marvel movie and 12 screens showing a, a Star Wars movie. And it doesn't matter if, you know, only two people are in the theater. That's better than no one. And it's certainly better than two people seeing one of your competitors' films. So for, for me, I think this is a terrible idea. And it especially hurts the independent theater owners who are already in a, tr- in a very tough position because of Disney and Disney not showing any repertory films from their library or 20th Century Fox's library. That puts them in an even tighter position as an independent theater because now they're not working with the studios, they're competing with the studios. And they're saying to the studios, hey, can we show, you know, this new uh, Mission Impossible film? And Paramount's like, well, we own a theater chain. We're just going to put it in our own theaters. Why would we take less of a profit showing it to you when you're showing it this way? Again, this is this is all conjecture. Obviously, I don't know the future, but I know uh, with a with a relative certainty that this is bad. Yeah. Well, and then obviously the Disney Plus thing. You know, the uh, if Disney decides they're going to open their own theaters, they could say, "Well, you can see this Disney Plus movie in theaters only in our theaters." Right. Exactly. Like it's. It, All this is doing is hurting competition. And the reason this law was put in place was for competition. It's an antitrust law. That's what it is. Monopolies are bad for consumers. And because they limit choice, they limit freedom and they limit the marketplace and they create more homogenization. That's what the free market is doing. It's just creating more of the same shit. So it drowns out diversity of voices. I think it's a terrible idea. I think it is another nail in the coffin for theatrical distribution. Um, and, 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 and it hurts. And, and I think that's, that's really bad. And I don't know how it's going to shake out. Um, but theatrical distribution has been in a very serious decline. And to be honest, I think a lot of theater owners have been in denial about it. I think there have been some that are trying to do the right thing. I think the Alamo draft house has been pretty strong in understanding that what people want is a good experience and they want diversity. They want to feel like going to the movies is a fun time. Um, but if you're like running AMC or Regal or Cinemark, you've, your head's been kind of up your ass, to be blunt. You're, you're offering a shitty experience, and you know you're, you've been behind the eight. You've been behind the times every at every turn. You know you weren't aware of you know oh serving quality food at your pictures. You weren't the first to do that. And now we've come to, um, you know, can you like uh, it was Movie Pass, and Movie Pass yeah. sucked, but Movie Pass was like, oh, people want to buy, you know, they want a subscription service rather than individual tickets because your individual tickets are too fucking high. So like, and now the theaters are finally there, like they have their own kind of Movie Pass like plan, but they're not innovators; they're too slow moving, and I think that that bodes very poorly when you have the major studios licking their chops at like, Hey, how many theaters can we buy up? Yeah. To that point, uh, we got a question from Matthew long asking, while comic book movies are still popular when going to the theater. Do you see a future in which audiences lose interest in seeing these movies in theater? And instead Disney will release these movies on Disney plus. Uh, I think absolutely. 
Like, I think that's probably a foregone conclusion. Although Disney Plus has had a stumble with its first two original movies on Disney Plus being one is an outright stinker and the other one is just like fine. Noel and Lady and the Tramp. Um, I mean, obviously Marvel is doing the TV shows, which is their continuation of the story in like six episode limited series. The problem with that is that uh, those take so long to put together. Although maybe it's a shorter time from when they wrap to when they can put that on Disney Plus. But regardless, I think, um, you know, in an, in an effort to draw more subscribers, Disney Plus will absolutely start releasing certain films only on Disney Plus, including superhero movies. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a good I mean, you know, we've had like, oh, you know, they announced a Miss Marvel show, but maybe Disney's like maybe our Miss Marvel show should be a Miss Marvel movie and the Miss Marvel movie goes directly to Disney Plus. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be a smaller budget, obviously. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, it it, it could definitely go that way. Um, Again, theatrical. If if the superhero genre starts trending downward, which inevitably it will at some point, like we will reach some sort of saturation point. We haven't hit that yet, but I think we're, I don't know if we're close on superhero movies. I think we're close on blockbusters uh, given the uh, just bombing of movies like men in black international. I definitely think we're, yeah. In terms of IP, we're in a bad place because the the studios are kind of between a rock and a hard place. They need IP. We've talked about this on a previous episode. They need IP to sort of appease their shareholders, but then these movies suck anyway. So what what's the alternative? And the obviously the alternative is find original movies and make them interesting and don't spend a fucking fortune on them. Um, but as of right now, studios haven't quite cracked that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we have a question from Jay Rokotansky. After the lackluster performances of Dr. Sleep, Charlie's Angels, and Terminator, and a mid-budget film like Joker or better films like Hustler or Us were so profitable, do you think studios will start to take risks on smaller or more interesting films? I actually do think that. I actually think the, if they're smart, the, the, the guy that they should be following is, is Jason Blum. Yeah, uh, of Blumhouse because Blum, what Blumhouse does is Blumhouse is all about keeping it cheap, and I, I and that's not to say that Blumhouse movies look cheap. Like you don't you don't look at 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 Get Out and be like, oh, this looks like a piece of shit. But they're doing some of them do. Okay, some some of them, some of them do, but not all of them. Your larger point stands. My larger but- point stands. You can you can basically. I mean, Get Out was a movie made for five million, and the way they kept costs down is they do little things like they don't have speaking roles for they don't have featured extras. So you'll never have like a waiter say a line in a movie, like in a Blumhouse movie, because then you have to pay them more money. So they don't do that. They're usually contained to a very specific location. As we saw with Get Out, they're largely contained to one, one, one place. I know, Jack, if you can hear my dog barking in the background, I'm getting to it. Um, and three, they don't really splurge on movie stars. And you can make, you can be successful at that. You can, the thing is, is that the reason that studios don't do that is leverage. And what I mean by leverage is the more that you invest, the greater chance of return. So if you spend like 10 million on a movie, that movie might make you a hundred million. And that's a, that's a tenfold return. Who wouldn't be psyched about that? Because if you spend a hundred million on a movie, you could get a billion back. So instead of a return of $90 million, you get a return of $900 million. And obviously I'm not including prints and advertising, but you get what I'm saying. There is The more you spend, 
there is a greater chance of a larger, it's, it's a risk and reward. It's a bigger risk, but there's also a chance of a bigger reward. And that's why studios do that. But I think they have to start waking up to the fact that the rewards are getting rarer and rarer if you don't have like Marvel Studios in front of your film. Um, it's very hard to break through. And I think a film like Joker, which is sort of a mid-budget thing, um, is is probably a safer bet for a studio because, you know, Joker cost $50 million. They probably spent about $50 million to advertise it. That's $100 million. It was It was always going to surpass $100 million because it was too intriguing to pass up. I think, you know, my hope is that when they stop overspending on this IP, maybe they'll come back down to earth and spend money on movies that are intriguing um, rather than like it has to, everything has to be a franchise. Yeah. I think the future is investing in storytellers. I mean, after get out and us, Jordan Peele brokered a deal with, uh, through his monkey pop productions with universal for distribution. And I think universal as well, uh, is doing the same thing with M night Shyamalan, um, which, you know, obviously M night Shyamalan is, is much more hit or miss, but they're investing in these filmmakers and storytellers. They're not necessarily saying, Hey, Jordan Peele, can you direct the next Fast and Furious movie? Although I'm sure they asked him that. Oh, I mean, uh, they asked him to do everything. They asked him for like Akira. They asked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he had but a ton of franchises driven up to his door. Yeah. But they're striking these deals to ensure that the next, whatever the next social thriller is that comes from Jordan Peele, which is bound to be unique and bound to be successful, um, will be distributed by Universal Pictures. Like, So I think that's that's the way of the future. Uh, you know, even Ari Aster, divisive figure. Um, I don't know if he struck a deal with A24 or not, but people like him, people like Robert Eggers, I think investing in these storytellers who are, are making interesting stories um, is kind of the way to go now uh, because those IP are no longer, they are not safe bets at all. So. No, and I think honestly, in a, in a world sort of dominated by social media and and where the, the person is now the brand, Invest in those brands. If people are brands, and I hate that, but it's a fact of our post-capitalist society. If people are brands, invest in those brands. Like invest in the Greta Gerwig brand. Invest in the Jordan Peele brand. Like people feel connected to these auteurs and like take it. People feel more connected to auteurs who are making good things right now than anyone feels connected to fucking Charlie's angels in 2019. And that's not a slam against Elizabeth Banks or anyone who went into, or who was in the movie. It's a slam against a studio. That's like, is Charlie's Angels still popular? Can I get yeah. away with that? And the answer is, of course you fucking can't. It's like, it was a seventies TV show. We know what Charlie's angels is, but this notion that like, I want to go to the movies to see it is, is an idea that should have been left in the early two thousands, which is where it originally lived. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, we live in interesting times. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes forward, but, yeah, invest in Greta Gerwig, invest in Jordan Peele, invest in Martin Scorsese, for goodness sakes. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, for as, as, as much as people want to get mad online at Scorsese, Scorsese didn't, like, go to Netflix first. He went to fucking Paramount, and Paramount was like, no thanks. We've got yeah. other fish to fry. 
But Paramount is doing, as far as I know, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is his next movie. But that movie has Leonardo DiCaprio. It's DiCaprio. And it's also, to be honest, it's whereas like The Irishman is about, you know, age and regret. (laughs) um, Killers of the Flower Moon is ostensibly (laughs) a procedural. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a good story, but like, I mean, it's no, not slamming The Irishman. I understand why Paramount passed. I still think it was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, and I'm, to be honest, I mean, we'll get into this more when we talk about the Irishman, but I'm kind of glad they passed because if Paramount didn't pass, Scorsese definitely would have been under a mandate to keep it at three hours or, or less. Yeah, and that's true. Would not have worked as well, which is what happened with Wolf of Wall Street. It was longer and they said you have to, he was contractually obligated to deliver a cut of the movie that was three hours or less. And that's why the Wolf of Wall Street is literally three hours long, right. not a minute more. Yeah. So... Yeah, if you want to make a movie that's more than three hours, it better have fucking Thanos in it. <laughs> yeah, uh, people love oh, people Thanos. love Thanos. Um, oh. All right, any more any more questions? Uh, none that I can see. Okay. Um, what have you? Uh, anything you watched lately that you want to talk about? I did. Yeah, I. I, I mean, uh, uh, you know, free time has uh, not really opened up until too late in order to go and see some of the movies I talked about earlier in the podcast, but not too late to watch stuff I have had saved on DVR or um, stuff that uh, I've wanted to see. So I did a, a cup, two catch-ups of movies that had been meaning to watch. One of which was Atomic Blonde, which I had never seen, which I liked quite a bit. Uh, I think it's definitely the best of David Leach's solo efforts so far. Um, those being Deadpool 2 and Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, it's really stylish and fun. I really love the cinematography. I thought Charlize was really good in it. And I think the script was good, which I think is the difference between that and Deadpool two and Hobbs and Shaw. Um, so I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun with that one. Did you like Atomic Blonde, right? I thought it was okay. I do love the one in that movie. Yes. The one is insane in that movie, but, uh, I had a lot of fun with it. I enjoyed it. Um, and then the other one is rocket man, which just made me angry about Bohemian Rhapsody all over again. <laughs> it does. It's the same movie. Like, structure-wise, it's roughly, like, it's the same kind of movie. But it's so much better in every single way than Bohemian Rhapsody. Because it's the same arc of, like, rise, fall, rise of this musician who struggled with hiding his sexuality and struggled with fame and struggled with drugs. Um but it's just so inventive in the way that Dexter Fletcher, the director, realizes it, which, ironically enough, Dexter directed the reshoots on Bohemian Rhapsody. Or not reshoots, but like finished the fucking movie because Brian Singer bolted. Um, but the Paramount, which released Rocketman, had the balls to be like, yeah, no, we're going to leave the gay sex scene in. Um, we're going to let it get really weird and, and let it get pretty dark uh, and just trust that audiences will go with it. Yeah, I, I think Rocket Man's fantastic. Um, my wife had a really good comment, which is that if Rami Malek deserves to win an Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody, then Taron Egerton deserves to win two for Rocket Man. Yes, yes, because Taron Egerton is not fucking lip syncing. Yeah, oh, it's so infuriating. <laughs> I really love the way they handled the music, though. I mean, it is a full-on musical. It's yes. not just music in like him performing, but it's using the music of music of Elton John to tell the story of Elton John. Um, so, you know, it begins with him as a kid, but the kid is singing the bitches back. Obviously as a kid, he had not written the bitches back yet. Um, but he's singing about kind of his upbringing and, uh, you know, his mother and his life, um, and, uh, where he grew up. If you did that big, uh, 
uh, trip for Rocket Man, right? You guys I see like some sites and stuff. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I, I I genuinely enjoy that film. I think it's really inventive. It's really what you would want from an Elton John biopic. Um, yeah. And and like and like you, it makes me just angry about Bohemian Rhapsody all over again. And I guess you know, from a studio perspective, you can be like, well, Bohemian Rhapsody made a you know six hundred million dollars or whatever, um, and Rocket Man didn't. But Rocket Man's the better fucking movie, so. Go, go screw. Yeah, I don't like tons of bad movies have made money. So that argument holds no water for me. I mean, yes, I guess from a studio perspective, sure. Yeah. If you're a shareholder in a studio and that's in, uh, you know, the studios, you know, go nuts. But, but I also think it's an unfair comparison because I think that I think they should have held rocket man because I think it came out so quickly after Bohemian Rhapsody that there was some, uh, I mean, not entirely dissimilar from the Last Jedi solo debacle, where mm-hmm. it was kind of like, oh, we we already yeah, saw. Yeah, I've already that. seen this. Yeah, yeah. I think they and I think if they had held it toward the fall, it would have a better chance in the awards race. To be honest. Yeah. No, I agree with that for sure. sure. You know, but we don't run the studio. I forget even what studio Rocket Man. Oh, Rocket Man is Paramount. Paramount. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I just yeah. I does what does Paramount have a a holiday contender? I'm trying to think of like what they were making room for. I mean, they're, they're pushing rocket man pretty hard. All right. Um, I'm trying to think of what the big movies are. Um, I just really haven't seen anything from paramount lately. Yeah. We're probably missing something very obvious. I know something very, really obvious. Uh, okay. Uh, I can't think right now. Yeah. Um, you know, Oh, bombshell is paramount, right? Or is that Sony? No, it's, is it, is it, Fuck, I don't even know, man. <laughs> oh, Bombshell is, I think, Lionsgate. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to keep so. puzzling over this. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Rocket Man is good. If you didn't see it, I suggest seeing it. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, what I saw recently, I decided to watch uh, the 1953 Peter Pan on Disney Plus. Nice. Um, and uh, I mean, gosh, 2D animation is so gorgeous, and it makes me so sad that no one does it anymore. Like, it's just. It's not, it's just, it's a different style. It's not that it's like outdated. It's just a different style and it's still vibrant and cool. And I, it's Peter Pan visually is a real joy to watch. It's just Disney animation from that era at the top of its game. Storytelling wise, it's not my favorite. It's not that fun, to be honest. Um, it seems to not know who its main character is. It's, it's largely episodic. Um, and of course, all the Native American stuff is deeply racist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, also racist on the ride. Like I wrote it at Disney World when I was there earlier this year. I was like, oh yeah, this is still kind of problematic. Yeah, I mean, it's a fun ride, but you know, you could. That's the thing. It's just like it's 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 that kind of like we just don't think like with Peter Pan. It's like oh, they're flying in London, and no one, everyone just chooses to forget that there's like a song called like "What Made the Red Man Red" or something like that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. oh, that's not good. So, yeah, um, but I but think, I, I like the Disney is like you know what we're gonna put this on here like oh yeah we're no, not I'm definitely pretend- glad that they're not trying to hide it like they're trying to hide like Song of the South although Song of the South is its own level like like it's not even it's night and day like Peter Pan is tame compared yeah. to Song of the South well there's just nothing redeemable at Song of the South like there's no win in putting that on there so I understand that. I mean there's a historical win and sort of trying to come to <laughs> grips with your your history and being like, we fu- like, but the thing about song of the South is if you're going to you put- like song of the South, you may also like birth of a nation. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
the thing is, if you put Song of the South on Disney Plus, you would have to accompany it with like a documentary, like not yes. just a disclaimer, but a documentary to explain all the way that is is it is bad and to contextualize everything about it. Um, okay, so this brings up something interesting, and I've seen the call on Twitter for this for um, Disney Plus to hire Leonard Maltin to do kind of like Robert Osborne TCM style intros for a lot of these movies. Because um, I guess I didn't know this, but Leonard Maltin did a bunch of that stuff um, back in the eighties, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, for me, that would be fantastic because uh, you know I lo- I love learning the history of these kinds of movies, and I think historical context is important and necessary and fascinating sometimes. And that's what I liked about that's what I like about watching TCM is that I get this five to ten minute introduction by Robert Osborne or Ben Mankiewicz. Um, kind of explaining like, you know, oh, you're about to watch Sweet Smell of Success. Here's what was going on at that time in Hollywood. Here's the status of these stars at that time. The director, like what he was going through, why this kind of story resonated. Like, I think that would be super helpful and and interesting on Disney Plus. But I don't know if kids would watch that. So I don't know if it's worth them investing in it. But I would really appreciate it. I would that. watch it. Yeah. yeah. Invest that. You're Disney. You have the money. Yeah. Like, tell me how, like, in you know, Disney loves to gloss over things, so I'm sure they wouldn't address, you know, the racism things. But, like, what what was happening with the studio? Like, you know, it was only recently that I learned that Cinderella, like, Walt didn't like Cinderella, and the studio, like, barely eked it out. Yeah, I mean, Dumbo was a flop in its time. I mean, it's crazy, yeah. like, these films that have gone on to become classics. And part of the reason that they're considered classics is because Disney re-released them so many times. And yeah. this is just the latest in the ways of re-releasing their content. Yeah. So I have not watched Peter Pan. We have watched Three Caballeros, Mm. um, which I had never seen. And it's one of the many, many Disney quote unquote films that are just like a series of shorts. Uh, And I think Three Caballeros was created uh, during World War II, which is why it's just shorts. Um, yeah, well, it was not just built, you know, during, it was not just made during World War II. It was basically contracted. Like, it was basically made with government funds to be like, yeah. we need to get South America on our side. Yeah. <laughs> Call yeah. in Walt. It must be nice. Yes. <laughs> South America on your side. Um, that's Hamilton, folks. It is. You listen to it. Uh, I... Uh, yeah, I also wanted to tease um, people listening to this podcast. By the time you listen to this podcast, uh, we'll have an article on the website of every Disney animated film ever ranked by Drew Taylor, who is kind of a Disney expert. I highly suggest you go and read that, not just to see the rankings, but like in each film, he does discuss the history and stuff like this. Yeah, he discusses um, why it is the way that it is. Yeah, so if if this conversation fascinated you at all, if you were still listening to this stupid podcast, uh, <laughs> go go and find it. <laughs> And it, it may give you some some fun things to watch on Disney Plus. I know that was hyperbole, but it still hurts my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> We're just rambling. All right. Um, actually, you know, it's funny. We uh, we actually also have a reader hot take this week, and I'd Ooh. like to, I'd like to share that because That's we cool. always are reaching out for for reader hot takes if you like the show. Although uh, one person left us just a, a positive review, they just didn't have a hot take, which you're more than welcome to do. If you like the show, it doesn't have to have a hot take. We just, you know, it's for, I've, we, we felt that was incentive, but uh, yeah, if you like the show, certainly let it, let people know on iTunes. Uh, yeah. But uh, shade posse says uh, uh, first things first. Thanks for a consistently great podcast. I thoroughly enjoy listening every, listening every week. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate that. Here is a seasonal hot take for you to engage with. Scrooged is a terrible movie. 
I just watched it for the first time and found it shockingly bad. Is it an adaptation of A Christmas Carol? If so, I think we have to say it's a wretched one. I've never been less moved or convinced of a sincere change of heart on the part of Scrooge. Is it a comedy? I think technically, yes, but it's, isn't, isn't a comedy supposed to make you laugh? Mostly, this is angry shouting followed by a last-minute, unearned, nauseating, cynical attempt at sentiment. The Muppet Christmas Carol succeeds everywhere that this fails. Thanks for the great podcast. Um, I'm with this guy. I don't like Scrooge. And yes, it is an adaptation of A Christmas Carol. It's, I don't like Scrooge. Some people are like, yeah, Scrooge is great. And, you know, Bill Murray, it's, it's a great film. I think Scrooge is bad. I think of, as far as Christmas Carol adaptations go, first off, yes, Muppet Christmas Carol is, is amazing. But Scrooge is just like, I would not recommend Scrooge to people. Like, if you want to see like a, like a harder edged Christmas Carol, you can do that. They're out there. Honestly, Robert Zemeckis made one of all people. Like mm-hmm. that, that, that one's pretty freaking dark. Um, I don't really like uh, Scrooge. I don't know how you feel about it. I like Scrooge, but it's uh, it's the same way I like Christmas Vacation. Just like people being dicks at Christmas. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it's and that is a genre like bad genre. Santa, like people being dicks at Christmas is a thing. But I don't, yeah. I don't really go for it. You know, I feel like I don't know the hard edge I want of Chris like at Christmas is is Die Hard. That's about as hard, or the Ref. Like that's about as hard edged I'll go, as I'll go. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I definitely don't think Scrooge is a perfect film, and and it's a movie that I like more in in. Fits and spurts than like sitting down and watching the whole thing, which I did last year. Um, because I don't think it's perfect, I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I also find the behind the scenes stories interesting because apparently Bill Murray and who directed that one? Oh, yeah. Um, God, Richard Donner, uh, did not get along at all. Um, but also as someone who as a kid was like obsessed with how like movies and TV shows are made, I really liked just that aspect of it. Same way I like really liked Gremlins too. Um, sure. And, uh, God, what was the movie with John Ritter where he like went inside Stay the Stay tuned. Cable? Stay tuned. God, I love that movie. Stay tuned is a t- like you know, I feel like Stay Tuned is a, like it's not a good movie, but it's a good idea for a remake because it's like the, for those who haven't seen Stay Tuned, which is completely understandable. Stay Tuned is <laughs> John Ritter plays a guy who's obsessed with TV and basically Satan sells him a new television package <laughs> yeah. that is like a game show for Satan where he's like, can and he just puts John Ritter and Pam Debois into different kinds of like satanic parodies of television shows. And that's yeah. all the film is really. And I, they go inside their cable box and they're on a uh, they're on a game show channel they're on like pbs but they're in like the middle of the french revolution so they're about to get their heads chopped off they go on like there's like an exercise show but it's also like the exorcismist like it's and so like they're like turning their heads around it's weird it's pg by the way which is also weird um but it's a dark (laughs) simpler times yeah but yeah uh that's a long way of saying that uh those kinds of stories were very easy sells for me um so i think there's that part of it that like I'll always just be connected to but uh but I don't I I don't think you're uh, in a minority opinion um I think that uh, Scrooge is definitely a a rough movie yeah. although this com- upcoming FX Christmas Carol looks like it's going to be the hardest edged of them all oh for sure well leave it, leave, leave it to Stephen Knight <laughs> yeah like the grittiest of gritty Christmas carols yeah um, all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you 
twice next week because while you are enjoying your holidays, we are going to give you a double dose of Scorsese. So we are going to talk, do one episode talking about Scorsese's filmography and then another episode solely about the Irishman. So you have that to look forward to. Have a happy Indeed. Thanksgiving, everyone.